0: This is Historiansplaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and YouTube, and if you want to keep hearing them, keep them coming, I encourage you to go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historiansplaining and see if you can just contribute whatever you might be able to. So as I said last time, I've gotten a number of questions and suggestions from listeners about topics to talk about, and I'm going to sort of sort through them along with other things that I've been thinking about for a while myself that might fit into a kind of through line. But at this point, I figured I might stop and go back to the beginning, so to speak. Uh, So one of the subjects that a listener suggested I talk about recently was prehistory. So, prehistory, roughly speaking, the reconstruction of human life before the beginning of writing, is a very rapidly growing and changing field. Okay, archaeology, paleontology, genetics, uh, the study of folklore and folk mythology. These are all very active fields right now, and all of them from all sorts of different directions are rapidly filling in new knowledge or new theories about how human beings lived and what they did and how human life came about before the beginning of so-called civilization around 5,000 years ago. So a much more detailed picture is quickly coming into focus human life is turning out to be much more rich and sophisticated and eventful probably than anyone would have thought even just 30 or 40 years ago when we still talked about you know cavemen <laughs> you know a lot of life did go on in caves but it was a lot more interesting you might say than than we would have thought now this very idea and category of prehistory of course is strange and, and complicated and it's something that historians as such don't often uh, examine. Right? Prehistory means before history and traditionally since the sort of great awakening of the historical academic discipline in Germany in the 19th century, history has been customarily defined as the examination of written records, okay, and 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 the oldest, most ancient record, written records, uh, at least in theory, are from uh, Sumer, which invented our earliest known writing system, somewhere around 3,000 BC or a little earlier. However, it's obviously it's a bit arbitrary um, why that should be the the cutoff and the limitation of what we count as history. You know, historians are always dealing with more different sources than just written documents. Uh, You know, we have to try to reconstruct the past and what people have done and why using any sources we can. And that often includes uh, physical objects, uh, archaeological remains, uh, art of various sorts and oral history, right? Uh, Now, It's true, as historians will generally tell you, that you should trust a source that was created as close as possible to the event that it's describing, as opposed to later sources, and as such, a written source from close to an event should be given more weight, all other things being equal should be given more weight than an oral account that has been passed down through time and could be changed or distorted and that's certainly a good uh, basic rule of thumb that scholars ought to use but it's not an absolute qualitative difference there's nothing that guarantees that written sources are accurate or oral sources are not accurate and when we're talking about human life before the beginning of civilization we don't have written sources strictly speaking so when we have oral sources those often are our best clues and our best sources of information about about the events we're trying to discover and I would argue that in general the historical discipline has been slowly shifting towards taking a closer look at oral histories and what they can reveal, and I think that that shift has not even been quick enough, uh, and that actually when you get down into the weeds, you very often find that oral sources have a lot of information in them that often ends up being verified or corroborated by other sources, and that in general they should be taken more seriously. Okay, So I'll probably mention a few examples of that uh, in this lecture. and and I will again, probably in, in future lectures. Why did 19th century scholars draw this sort of cutoff line and say, history only really begins with the formation of cities and civilization and writing? in the ancient uh, Near East well one explanation is that these scholars although they didn't say so openly were still under the influence of Jewish and Christian mythology uh, and the sort of sacred history which placed the beginning of human life in the Garden of Eden which was traditionally believed to be at a place where four rivers meet somewhere in the east, right? And Near Eastern civilizations like Mas- Mesopotamia and Egypt kind of fit that description, loosely speaking. And so it seems to accord with our sort of inherited mythology to imagine somehow that the dawn of history is there in a place like like Mesopotamia. and And so we can conveniently shunt off everything before that into this... Kind of side bin, this kind of miscellaneous side bin of prehistory, right? Not real history. When in fact we can, as we're finding now increasingly with recent discoveries, we can learn and understand quite a lot and a lot of surprising things about where human beings came from long before ancient Sumer. In fact, uh, it seems likely now, based on archaeological discoveries, it seems likely that Homo sapiens, so our species that we belong to, have been around for at least 300,000 years, right? And urban civilization, so far as we know, has only been around for maybe a little more than 5,000 years, okay? So we're talking about... uh, When we talk about prehistory, we're talking about the vast majority of all of human life as measured in time, as measured in years or generations. The vast bulk of human life has been prehistoric, and it has been a life mainly of hunting and gathering and sometimes fishing and gardening and these sort of simple ways of procuring food and, and sustaining life. This is how people have lived through most of the human experience. And this kind of hunting, gathering life is it's the way uh, we have lived through most of our history and it is the way many people still live today. So even the advent of civilization in that sense didn't end prehistory. Uh, prehistory has continued right on up to today and there are still today people living uh, in the Amazon, living in Australia, uh, Southeast Asia, all kinds of people, uh, Siberia, who are still living lifestyles basically similar to the way their ancestors and our ancestors lived uh, before urban life began. So to understand prehistory is really to understand the bedrock and the, the bulk of actually the human experience through these thousands of years. Another fact uh, that we should note, which I'm going to talk about more in this lecture, is the fact that through most of our history, in the sense of most of our past, we, Homo sapiens, have lived alongside other closely related species. Species of the same genus that shared a lot of similar traits and a lot of similar behaviors. And that we had to sort of negotiate and improvise how to coexist with these other human or human-like species most or all of which are now gone and you'll you'll notice I made a little caveat there because it's it's hard to be absolutely certain but as far as uh, we know as far as I know as far as my listeners know today all these other hominid species that were our close relatives are all gone and we're now in this, fairly new and unique situation of being alone of being the only highly intelligent technological species around. Right. So when we look at prehistory we're really looking at a very strange complicated ambiguous human situation that most of our ancestors in some way were affected by and that we really no longer think about. So this raises the question of what exactly we consider human, right? So even if we want to talk about the human experience in the human past, it's, it's very fuzzy exactly where you draw that line of who counts as a human and who doesn't. Uh, but for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to be concerned with homo sapiens, with people who basically looked like us, who seemed to have had similar habits and mental abilities, to us, and who, all of whom are very closely biologically related to us, right? So, so all the people living in the world today are all very closely biologically related. We all come from uh, one race and one really fairly tightly knit uh, genetic family, which sort of allows us, gives us the ease of sort of drawing a, a nice, clear, simple line around who is part of this human race and who isn't. But that was, it was not always that way and it was a long, long process before we ended up here. Okay, so where did we, homo sapiens, come from? These, these creatures that we call and recognize as human? Well, as you probably know, we evolved from other primates, you know, sort of uh, apes, loosely speaking, in Africa, right? Africa is the place of origin of humans. The particular group of apes that were our ancestors and that would eventually develop into hominids split off from a related group of apes which would become chimpanzees and bonobos. Uh, so, so this was not exactly a speciation, the formation of species, as biologists would call it, but it was sort of uh, genuses gradually moving apart and changing genetically, changing biologically until they became distinct separate groups in the family tree. And this splitting off happened around 2 million years ago. right? So this distinct group of apes that we're descended from uh, sort of separated itself out from the larger population of apes around 2 million years ago and it seems genetically speaking chimpanzees are probably our closest living relatives still in the world today although bonobos are very closely related as well and it's possible that that they might be just as near relatives as, as chimps this distinct group of apes that sort of hived off around two million years ago gradually developed certain important innovations that helped them to compete and survive in the African environment the most obvious is bipedalism right, The, the walking more or less upright on two feet bipedalism has certain advantages one is being able to move quickly being able to stand up higher and see further, which is useful if you're in a grassland environment, and it can free up your front legs to become hands, to become more dexterous, uh, limbs with finer control, to manipulate objects, manipulate tools. These apes also very slowly and very gradually over time developed somewhat bigger brains right brains that could probably handle more complicated vision and visual processing, more complicated uh, communication, social relationships and more fine control of the hands for for using and creating tools which is something that we sometimes see other apes do as well but it seems that our early hominid ancestors really, uh, quickly became more sophisticated in the creation of, of tools. Various new species of apes developed that we can roughly group under this heading of hominin or hominid meaning human-like. Uh, Australopithecus Homo habilis and eventually Homo erectus. Now Homo erectus was a very successful species uh, and it, it means they're called erectus because they uh, apparently stood and walked more upright than any previous apes uh, had done. They could they could see far, they could run, uh, and they made simple stone tools. Erectus was apparently the first ape species to spread out of Africa. So at some point several hundred thousand years ago, uh, maybe as much as a million years ago, some Homo erectus found land bridges or narrow channels where they could move out of Africa into Asia and Europe. Right, So they're the first ones to kind of go global. Although they did not go to the Americas, but they went global as much as was feasible at that time throughout Africa and Eurasia. And you can find Homo erectus Remains, uh, skeletons, uh, trash heaps, small tools, things like this all over Africa and Eurasia. Some of these erectus populations, as biologists would expect, became more isolated and sort of clustered together in particular areas of the world where some of them then developed into distinct new species. So we have uh, some erectus populations becoming Homo heidelbergensis, uh, a particular, uh, apparently sort of intelligent technological species, more or less in the area around the Middle East and Asia Minor. And then most importantly for us, uh, Neanderthals. Uh, So the the origins of Neanderthal man uh, are not totally clear but it seems that they probably evolved from Homo erectus specifically in Europe. right? Now Europe was a colder climate and a more forested part of the world than the African areas where Homo erectus had come from and the Neanderthals slowly uh, evolved in such a way as to adapt to that kind of environment. They had sort of compact, round bodies which were good for conserving heat, uh, staying warm in the the winter. They were tough, uh, strong, muscular, and they made technologies like spears uh, which they used very effectively, particularly to hunt game in forested parts of Europe. So these new species have arisen in these other parts of Eurasia by you know within no more than 200,000 years ago. Meanwhile there are various hominids, Homo erectus and others still in Africa and they continue to evolve and to split off into new groups and new species adapted to different conditions in Africa. And one of these groups particularly adapts to life on grasslands. And as some of you may know, we today right now are in an interglacial warm period, meaning that we're in the middle of a long era when the climate of the earth is changing back and forth between warm and cold. So every, uh, every 20,000 years or so, the earth plunges into a deep uh, ice age. And during these ice ages, the climates of all parts of the world change. And one of the things that happens is during ice ages, the large northern mass of Africa, which we know as the Sahara Desert, becomes wet and fertile, right? So there have been various periods repeatedly over the past two million years when that huge expanse of central and northern Africa basically becomes a savanna where there is food and animals and where apes could roam around fairly freely. Uh, And it seems that probably around 300,000 or so years ago, certain groups of apes evolved to be particularly adapted to these expanses of grassland. Now, you may have heard previously that humans evolved specifically in the rift valleys in eastern Africa, Kenya, Tanzania. That might be true but increasingly from recent finds it seems that it wasn't necessarily just within that specific zone within Africa and as one paleontologist has said there is no garden of Eden in Africa. There is no specific spot where human the the homo sapiens species formed. Rather, it was Africa as a whole. It was this big, open, grassy, expansive environment where certain hominids gradually became Homo sapiens. Now, uh, how do we know this? What distinguishes these Homo sapiens that seem to have come into existence as a distinct species maybe around 300,000 years ago or even earlier? Well, they became taller, slender, live. They developed strong glute, glutes, okay, gluteal muscles which are particularly important in running. Uh, they also shed off most of their body hair or fur and their skin became more bare, which allows the person to sweat and hence to stay cooler. So all of these innovations the tall thin frame the strong gluteal muscles the sweat glands the lack of hair all of these things make it easier for a person to run for long periods of time long distances without becoming exhausted or overheated why does this matter well our early ancestors in this age were hunters Okay, these are all adaptations that make human beings excellent hunters. And in addition to this, it seems as if the skull case of early humans enlarged somewhat and was able to accommodate a a bigger brain, right? So brains grew. And this probably then allowed for more sophisticated planning, quick decision making, communication. This may be when language. Came about as well, and again, these sorts of capabilities, along with the greater dexterity that earlier hominids had had developed, enabled early humans to make much more sophisticated tools and to use them in uh, fine, targeted ways. Okay, spears, knives, and um, possibly camouflage. Early humans also around this time began wearing clothing, uh, and all in all we see we see something recognizably like human life. Now previously, even in recent years paleontologists had had tended to say that human beings evolved maybe 200,000 years ago and earlier in the century some even would have thought it was even more recent than that. Why has the date been pushed back so far? Well a large reason is the discovery of the earliest known homo sapiens skulls, which were found at Jebel Irhoud, an archaeological site in Morocco, beginning in the 1960s. And very sophisticated, fine-tuned carbon dating and luminescence dating tests have been done on those skulls just this year, in 2017, which dated them to around 300,000 years ago or a little earlier. So this discovery at Jebel Irhud both pushes the origin date of Homo sapiens back earlier and it lends a great deal of weight, uh, a great deal of, of new evidence to the idea that early humans were really wanderers who developed gradually as a group over a large stretch of central and northern Africa not just in a little rift valley in East Africa. So homo sapiens and their distinctive skills and habits seem to have spread quickly all over Africa. We can see for example early examples of human art in or what we could very loosely call primitive art in Blombos Cave in South Africa. And this again is a recent discovery just made in 2008 that uh, early humans uh, probably over 100,000 years ago were scraping uh, designs, cross hatches, grid designs and such into stone in Blombus Cave. They also apparently were crushing ochre, which is a very deep red colored stone into powder, probably in order to use it as a pigment for paintings or body painting. So, uh, So it seems as if aesthetics, creativity, even if in a very very crude form were already showing up among humans in uh, in the southern end of Africa tens of thousands of years ago. Okay. So this, this basically covers our earliest known roots of humans and distinctive human behavior within Africa. How did we end up in all these other places outside of Africa? Well, That is, on the one hand, a complicated story, but on the other hand, it also has apparently a very simple and specific answer. So it seems that there, firstly, there was an early wave of migration from Africa into the Middle East and Europe over 100,000 years ago. We don't know how big this migration was, and it doesn't seem to have been very successful. It doesn't seem to have stuck. Okay, there, there have been uh, very early burials of human beings found in caves in Israel uh, that date to more than 100,000 years ago, but it seems that that population of people who at some point somehow made it uh, up through the Sinai into the Near East uh, didn't last long and quickly retreated out, maybe because of climate change, maybe because of uh, hostility from other hominids, but for whatever reason, they didn't stay there long. Also, some small group seems to have gone into Europe where they then quickly intermixed with the Neanderthal population and did not remain as a distinct group. Okay, And this is something that, that has also been discovered fairly recently and is being explored by geneticists, that there, there was quite a bit, of interbreeding, it seems, between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals to such a degree that it's it's really hard to say that Neanderthals were really a separate species when it seems that they could have at least some fertile offspring sometimes. But again, Homo sapiens don't seem to have really made much of an impact outside of Africa from this first migration. So how did all of these people end up Uh, in Europe and Asia and Australia and everywhere else? Well, the answer seems to lie a little bit later. Maybe around 70,000 years ago or a little bit earlier, during an ice age, there were waves of droughts that swept across northern and eastern Africa and may have caused a lot of hardship for the hunting-gathering people in those areas, where there were a lot of humans by that time. At some point, the straits known as the Bab el-Mandeb, which is the the modern-day name for the fairly narrow, about 20-mile-wide strait at the lower mouth of the Red Sea, that strait seems to have become narrower. And at some point, some small human group must have made rafts or found some way of getting across that narrow strait and landed in what's now Yemen and from there spread along the coast of the Middle East eastward into India and Southeast Asia Okay. It was previously thought by many that there must have been many migrations out of Africa that led to the populating of the rest of the world But genetic studies have actually found that there are some very distinct specific genetic mutations that are common to all people from all other parts of the world outside of Africa and that are comparatively rare among native-born Africans, right? They're present, but they're rare. Whereas for everyone else, Europeans, Middle Eastern people, Asian people, indigenous Americans all of us have these distinctive mutations and this basically corroborates the idea which some archaeologists also support likewise that everyone outside of Africa is all descended from this one small group of fewer than 1000 people probably a few hundred a reasonable guess might be around 300 or so individuals who managed to raft across that strait from East Africa to Arabia, okay when they landed in Arabia they didn't necessarily find that welcoming an environment, it was also largely desert by that time, Uh, it was going through long term droughts there was not a whole lot of food, but there were freshwater springs and oases along the southern coast of Arabia, where they could sort of oasis hop along the coastline moving eastward. And it seems that they didn't stay there for very long. They didn't find it a very hospitable environment, but they eventually probably settled in India and their descendants then quickly moved on from there into Southeast Asia, right? So uh, Southeast Asia, what's now Malaysia, Indonesia, those have many of the earliest human archaeological sites in the world outside of Africa. And it makes sense that the people as they had come out of Africa basically traveled eastward following similar climate and environmental zones to what they were familiar to. Right? It's easier to take your food, your technology, your habits east-west than it is to go north-south. And that seems to be why uh, this Southeast Asian area was the first area of the world to be significantly populated they, they seem to have gone all the way to Australia by about 60,000 years ago, right? So we have people moving into Australia even before they moved northward into, into Europe and, and Central Asia Again, we don't know how they made it across those straits and channels uh, in, in Southeast Asia and eventually made it to Australia but they must have had some sort of system of creating rafts, maybe they had used this sort of technology on rivers or small channels like that and then were able to enlarge it into seagoing vessels but one way or another they, they reached Australia by 60,000 years ago and the Aboriginal Australian people that we see today are descended from that very early wave of humans. Another branch, as I mentioned before, gradually migrated northward through the Middle East and Central Asia and eventually northwestward into Europe. And it seems that Homo sapiens in more substantial numbers were moving into Europe by about 50,000 years ago, right? So it took it took about 10,000 years longer for them to make their way into Europe than it took for them to go all the way around the Indian Ocean to Australia. Okay, so what do we know about these people and these early Homo sapiens that moved into these regions? Uh, They continued hunting and gathering, okay, gathering of uh, fruits, nuts, roots and tubers and so forth, uh, hunting of wild animals, large and small game uh, in various parts of Malaysia, Indonesia, and Australia. It seems also that some of these island people, especially in Indonesia, also developed deep-sea fishing. Uh, so not just you know fishing along shores or in rivers, but created some sort of vessels that enabled them to, to catch uh, much larger fish. Some of the earliest known cave art in the world is in Indonesia, specifically in a set of caves on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. It's hard to know precisely how old art is in various places in the world, and these estimates are often changing, but the current carbon dating technology says that uh, some of the cave art that we see in Sulawesi is at least 40,000 years old. And the earliest pieces of this art are hand outlines or hand stencils. So people put their hands up against the rock surface in these caves and they then uh, spat, very slowly spat and sprayed pigment pastes over and around their hands so that they left an outline, okay? It seems this may have been sort of their, their signature, you know, their way of saying, you know, Jack was here. Uh, was to leave these hand outlines in caves where they may have lived for periods of time or simply visited. And it makes it possible, of course, 40,000 years later for, for modern people to put their hands up in these caves and compare the outlines of their own hands to those distant, distant ancestors from... More than forty thousand years ago. There's also in this cave in Sulawesi a drawing of a pig, a sort of simple uh, depiction of a pig, which is probably at least thirty-five thousand years old. Okay, so th- this this dating of this cave art in Sulawesi actually was only done in 2014. So this too is very very new information, establishing the the deep deep ancient age of this art and. The art in Sulawesi seems to establish certain patterns that we then see repeated in all sorts of prehistoric cave art from all sorts of different places over thousands of years. Similar hand stencils were made in Europe, I'll, I'll mention those some later, and the overwhelming theme of all prehistoric cave art is animals. Okay, it's hard to say why exactly, but for one thing, people were largely living off of animals. You know, human, early humans were hunters. That's sort of what we're biologically designed to do. So the sort of fasc, fascination with animals, dependency on animals, is then reflected in, in ancient people's art. Now, as I said before, these, these early humans, prehistoric humans, coexisted with other species. And this relationship between Homo sapiens and other hominid species is a very strange and fraught subject that we're also learning about very quickly in very surprising ways. On the island of Flores in Indonesia, Homo sapiens coexisted for some length of time with another species which has recently been discovered and named Homo floresiensis simply after the island of of Flores Homo floresiensis probably was descended from a population of Homo erectus that migrated into Indonesia at a time when sea levels were lower and most of the islands were connected to the mainland they then ended up being trapped on the island of Flores as sea levels rose again and over time they evolved to be smaller Uh, Homo floresiensis have sometimes been sort of colloquially called uh, hobbit people. They were very short, seemingly ranging from about three feet to four feet tall. They were a bit more hairy than Homo sapiens. Their faces were a little bit more ape-like. And their brains were smaller in proportion to their bodies than Homo sapiens, but not tiny so it's reasonable to guess that they might have had a certain level of intelligence but maybe not as much as, as Homo sapiens okay the first complete specimen of a skeleton of Homo floresiensis was found in a cave in Flores and it was initially estimated to be only about 12,000 years old but more recent archaeology has revised that and estimated that it's probably more like 50,000 years old Okay, so the 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 pieces of floresiensis remains that have been found are all from very early, uh, you know, long, really from around the same time that Homo sapiens were first showing up in Indonesia. And so, scientists have generally thought that they must have died out tens of thousands of years ago, probably shortly after Homo sapiens showed up and outcompeted them for resources. However, if you speak to the local people who live in the rainforest areas in Flores, they say that the specimens found in the forest are skeletons of Ebu Gogo. And Ebu Gogo is their term for a what they consider a race of tiny monkey-like people whom they say continued to live in Flores long after the arrival of European colonists in the 1600s, and that, that they sometimes say lived even into the 1800s until the last surviving sort of colony of Ebu Gogo were killed around seven generations ago from, from the present. And according to the people of Flores, uh, the Ebu Gogo could not cook. They had a sort of crude language. They would mutter to one another, but uh, and they could repeat back things that they heard homo sapiens say but they don't seem to have had sort of sophisticated complete sentences Uh, no human was able to fully learn their language they didn't know how to cook and they often stole food from humans Uh, and this is what eventually provoked people to kill them off in the 1800s so this of course raises the question of whether Gogo are in fact Homo floresiensis and if so, if it could be true that they in fact survived all the way down to the modern era. It also raises the question whether they might not have been entirely wiped out, whether there might be uh, survivors somewhere. It also raises questions about similar stories told by other Southeast Asian people, especially in Malaysia, who likewise say that until very recently there were sort of uh, small, hairy, uh, human-like creatures living in the forest, uh, and whether those might also be real, uh, factual accounts, and whether again there might be still be survivors in the kind of deep unexplored areas of the jungle in Southeast Asia. Okay. Uh, similarly, archaeological research in China has found hominid remains in the Red Deer Cave in Yunnan in southern China and it seems that in this cave at least there was a surviving population of sort of Homo sapien, Homo erectus probably Homo sapien, Homo erectus hybrid people who looked very similar to Homo sapiens but slightly more ape-like and that seemed to have survived to at least 15,000 years ago. And again, this raises the question of how long did these sort of other hominids uh, persist? And might there still be some around? Okay, so now if we turn to Europe, we have somewhat similar somewhat similar kind of parallel situation. People were able to slowly migrate northward from the Near East into Central Asia and into Europe, mainly due to the breakthrough invention of the sewing needle, okay. Uh, The invention of sewing made it possible to collect uh, hides, furs, fibers of various sorts and stitch them together into uh, strong layered garments for surviving cold weather. And uh, this technology allowed early infiltration of Homo sapiens first into the Balkans uh, and then after this early wave, a particular, it seems, uh, group, biological group of humans called Cro Magnons, seemed to have quickly swept in and spread all throughout Europe between about 40 and 50,000 uh, years ago. Uh, you know, and, 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 and again, even if it took that long, even if it took full 5,000 years, in archaeological terms, that's still uh, pretty quick they seem to have been uh, a hunting-gathering and cave-dwelling people, right? So in these more harsh and rugged environments of Europe, uh, caves became especially useful shelters, and we see a great deal of artifacts and and, and art eventually appearing in the caves in Europe. These Cro-Magnons and other early Homo sapiens in Europe competed and also intermixed with Neanderthals. Okay, so this was, this was a relationship that probably sometimes involved conflict, but just as often involved trade, coexistence, and even interbreeding. When we look at human genes today and compare them to the surviving remains of Neanderthal humans, we can see that uh, most people have at least a little trace of Neanderthal DNA, and particularly in Europe. Europeans have the most admixture of Neanderthal in their, in their genomes. Nonetheless, uh, most people remained mostly homo sapien or mostly Neanderthal. Uh, they still continued to be fairly distinct populations, maybe because most people preferred to mate more with their own species rather than, than interbreed. So they remained fairly distinct populations, and the number of neanderthal people gradually dwindled it seems they slowly were pushed out or migrated out of central and eastern europe and became more and more isolated in in southwestern europe and the last sort of surviving neanderthal population seems to have held out in spain and what's now spain and even over time was gradually isolated down to just the area around gibraltar Right? And the last Neanderthal remains we have are in the area of the Rock of Gibraltar, and it seems they died out somewhere around 30,000 years ago. And the evidence doesn't seem to say that it was because of uh, violence or hostile attacks, but it was more that they simply were outcompeted for resources like uh, game Especially as the climate slowly started to warm and you saw more grasslands opening up and open spaces in Europe, the Homo sapiens who were better suited for warmer weather and for walking and running over long distances became more effective food gatherers than the Neanderthals whose bodies and habits were more adapted to cold forest life, okay? so Neanderthals eventually uh, died out somewhere around 30,000 years ago this was after of course many thousands of years, at least 10,000 years probably more of coexistence and intermingling of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals so uh, this raises the question of whether there might be a sort of surviving historical record of Neanderthals in Europe in the same way that there is of Uh, Homo floresiensis in Indonesia and um, several scholars over the years have discussed the possibility of whether northern European stories of trolls might be based on the uh, ancient encounters with uh, Neanderthals Uh, and there are several interesting similarities between the trolls described in European folklore and Neanderthals. Uh, Trolls are considered sort of heavy, thick-set, big-boned, they have thick skin that protects them from the cold. They're said to have very pronounced brow lines and broad noses. And they're described as living in sort of rugged, difficult terrain that, that humans consider inhospitable, particularly living in caves. Okay? And the strongest folkloric traditions about trolls are in Scandinavia, And they tend to say that trolls live in the caves in the sort of mountain range running through Scandinavia. And uh, not much Neanderthal uh, archaeological remains have been found in Scandinavia, uh, possibly because it was eventually sort of wiped out and buried by glaciation. But if we, again, if we look at DNA, the strongest concentrations of Neanderthal DNA are found in Scandinavia and in Scotland and Northern Ireland. So congratulations guys, you are the most Neanderthal. So again, it's it seems possible that stories uh, of Neanderthals that include some fairly, you know, accurate details have survived through the millennia. It's it's at least a possibility worth considering. Okay, around the same time that Cro-Magnon was moving into Europe and Neanderthals were starting to be outcompeted, competed it seems as if human behavior changed and diversified and became more sophisticated. Now, scholars for a long time posited that a creative revolution happened somewhere around 40,000 years ago. This is when we first see humans creating complex cave art with sculptural uh, dimensionality, started creating adornments like uh, like beads and jewels, uh, flutes made out of bone that can play music. Uh, it, it seems as if what had previously been sort of simple, brutish behavior based on s- crude tool making and food acquisition suddenly exploded into a creative flowering as if someone kind of showed up and and breathed life into the brains and minds of these early humans. However, this idea of a creative revolution has been heavily questioned in recent years, and more more recent research and discoveries have have really uh, undermined this idea that there was a kind of sudden awakening of creativity. Uh, for one thing, most of the evidence for it is concentrated in Europe. And if we look back again at Africa, we can see a longer incremental development of more creative and aesthetic interests in humans. As I said before, uh, you know, Blombos Cave shows that. Very early humans, maybe 100,000 years ago, were using pigments and creating simple carvings. There is also evidence of jewelry, such as perforated shells that were might have been used as beads. Uh, there's also evidence of more sophisticated. Uh, technologies like fishing, deep-sea fishing, also long-distance trade. People in Africa and Southeast Asia seem to have traded with faraway peoples for interesting or beautiful or useful objects. Uh, There were new inventions like bows and arrows, which were invented in Africa by at least 64,000 years ago. And also, interestingly, a lot of these characteristic new behaviors and art forms that proliferate in the creative revolution in Europe, even those don't seem to have been limited to Homo sapiens. Increasingly, we're finding that Neanderthals probably also made beads or traded for them. They made cave sculptures. There was uh, a discovery recently in Spain of a sort of geometric arrangement of small broken and carved stones in the middle of a cave, which might have been some sort of ceremonial site created by Neanderthals. There probably also was, at le- was a discovery of at least one crude cave painting. Okay, In El Castillo Cave in Spain, archaeologists have found sort of simple drawings of seals on a stalagmite in the cave, which most likely were made by Neanderthals, who largely lived off of eating uh, uh, those coastal seals. So current scholars hypothesize that this apparent sort of explosion of creative activity in Europe around 40,000 years ago wasn't the result of some sort of mental or biological change but might have simply been the result of a growing population and greater population density and when you have larger groups able to live in a more concentrated way in specific areas it's easier then for some of them to have the the leisure time to do things like paint or or make jewels, uh, or experiment with new technologies, uh, and that's a more plausible uh, explanation for what looks like this this creative revolution. Okay, so as I said, uh, archaeologists have found uh, bone flutes from from around this time, starting around forty thousand years ago. Some scientists have made casts and replicas of these flutes and found that they play the pentatonic scale. (laughs) You can play songs like the Star Spangled Banner on them. It's the same musical scale. The first known figural art that has been found, or or I should say uh, sculpted figural art, is the so-called Lion Man, which was found in a cave in Germany in 1939 and it was carved out of tusk around 35 to 40,000 years ago and it seems to represent a standing human figure many pieces are broken or worn down it's had to be carefully reconstructed but even so it's not clear whether the figure is male or female but it's clearly a human figure standing on two legs with two arms and shoulders and it has a lion head Okay. And this sort of motif of, of creatures that are part human, part animal shows up again and again all through prehistoric art. It seems to be a kind of obsession of prehistoric artists, at least in, in Africa and, and Eurasia. This uh, lion man is then followed by many uh, Venus figures, which are sort of small sculptures of female bodies with large hips and breasts sort of clearly uh, exaggerated female features made out of stone or bone or sometimes ceramics that have been found all over europe the first figural paintings if we if we put aside the pig figure that we saw in Sulawesi in Indonesia uh, the first sort of extensive collections of figural paintings are in caves in France and Spain and probably the oldest although this is very you know up in the air and constantly changing probably the oldest are in Chauvet Cave in France which are at least 37,000 years old and were painted over the course of at least 5 or 6,000 years so it seems as if there were people in that area in France during the ice age who lived off of gathering and particularly off of hunting large game and who repeatedly returned to this cave over and over again to add more and more images of animals. You see very sophisticated, three-dimensional, rich portrayals of horses, rhinoceroses, lions, uh, monkeys, all sorts of animals most of which are no longer seen in Europe most of which have gone extinct since the ice age ended but but cold climates in the ice age favor large animals that are able to keep themselves warm. So these humans were truly living surrounded by and apparently in awe of the large animals that they that they hunted or that sometimes hunted them and they went back sometimes, uh, repeatedly adding to the same freezes of animals over thousands of years. So scientists have found through carbon dating examples where one horse was, was painted and then another in a very similar style was added next to it three or four thousand years later. Okay, So we don't know exactly why they painted in these caves like Chauvet, but it apparently was something uh, very important in their way of life that they kept uh, alive for as long as they could until something eventually made the caves inaccessible. So for example, with Chauvet, uh, somewhere around 35,000 years ago, there was a large rock slide that sealed off the entranceway into that cave and hence the, uh, the painting stopped and those images were preserved for thousands of years for us to find in the 1990s. One can also see remarkable similarities among the artistic styles and techniques in these various caves. Okay, Similar sorts of paintings, uh, mostly again of animals, similar sculptures of female figures or human-animal figures, uh, similar flutes uh, appear all over Europe, and it seems as if these various uh, peoples, despite their, their differences or conflicts they might have had, uh, shared a great deal and learned from and imitated one another, much more so than Neanderthals. You see a, a much greater consistency among Homo sapiens in their art and technology than you see among Neanderthals. And so some have theorized that this might be, again, part of why humans outcompeted Neanderthals is that they could learn from each other more quickly and they could act in concert in, in a sort of alliance system in a way that small pockets of Neanderthals did not. Although, uh, again, the, the current the, the current evidence uh, increasingly shows that Neanderthals were intelligent, right? Uh, they they had large brains, they had technology, they had art of some sort. They were not idiots. Okay. Again, there was a there was a continuing fascination with animals and with human animal hybrids of one sort or another. Uh, in another uh, prehistoric site in France, at the caves of Lascaux, one sees uh, many depictions of animals and also one of a human with the head of a bird. In another cave at uh, Trois Freres, one sees a figure that has customarily been called the sorcerer. It seems to be a sort of part human, part elk or deer figure. Early scholars claimed that it had antlers. It's not so clear if the figure really has antlers, but it seems to have human legs and feet and yet be stooped over in the sort of quadrupedal position of of a four-legged animal. So so over and over we, we see very rare images of humans and when they do appear, they are somehow part animal. Well, why is this? Well, if we again, if we look back at Africa, we see some similar patterns, especially in southern Africa, among the San people, who are a hunting-gathering people in southern Africa. And their traditional rock art also shows hybrid human-animal figures. And in that case, the, these hybrid figures are shamans, right? So the San, who are still around, say that these are shamans entering into a trance state, where they become animals or somehow commune with, with animals. They are able to cross over from the ordinary human world into the, the spirit world, which is also the animal world, and where they, they can sort of cross the boundaries between humans and animals. And in fact, some people like the San actually have mythologies which say that at one time in the past, humans and animals were all one undifferentiated group and only later were they somehow split and were humans separated from animals and a boundary was drawn uh, between them which you know from the modern point of view uh, is a very interesting myth because it 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 may be closer to what we would call accurate you know that that human beings did evolve out of uh, other animals in the in the animal kingdom some similar shamanistic ideas can also be found in Europe if you study Records of of folklore and folk art, and even if you look at uh, practices in places like northern Scandinavia that have continued down into modern times, you find people who believe that certain special individuals that we can loosely call shamans have this ability to go into a kind of trance or ecstatic state where they become animals and travel to, into the world of animals. And certain folk stories that you've probably heard of, like werewolves, are probably outgrowths of this this belief system. You know, the notion that there are certain individuals who at particular special times can somehow transform into animals or into part animals. And some paleontologists have even theorized that this might really be the origin of art as such, that, that the, the roots of art simply spring from people trying to record or depict uh, this process of crossing into the animal world, which is also in some way the, the spirit world. Okay. Now, the latest continents to be populated by humans, of course, are the Americas, and it seems most likely that humans crossed over the Bering Land Bridge from Siberia over into what's now Alaska maybe around 30,000 years ago. So again, during the Ice Age, at a time when glaciers were larger and sea levels were lower, the narrow channel of sea between Siberia and Alaska was uncovered, and people slowly, uh, gradually migrated along the coastline Uh, surviving off of fish, shellfish, seals, and those sorts of coastal food sources, and for thousands of years probably settled in Alaska, and only millennia later, maybe around 17,000 years ago, then migrated down from Alaska into what's now Canada and spread into the rest of the Americas. Okay. So, again, migrating from one climate area to another is much more complicated and takes gradual adjustment and invention and discovery. And so, uh, and so it was a slow process moving out of that kind of Arctic corner down into the rest of the Americas. It seems as if after that initial migration, there were two further waves of migration from Asia into the Americas. And we can see when we look at uh, indigenous American languages, we see three distinct language groups, uh, which probably are derived from the three different languages that these three waves of migrants spoke as they came uh, into America. It's also possible that some small number might have also crossed from the Pacific Islands and landed in South America, Uh, but that's, uh, that's theoretical, it's possible. Most of these people, as they migrated into North America, again chased big game, right? Same as, same as the people who migrated into Europe, they were following the herds of large animals, and that was their main food source. Not long afterwards, most of these large animals went extinct, right? So when we think about Native American life, we might think of uh, buffalo or you know, bison hunting. Uh, well, bison were basically the only megafauna that survived in America down to modern times. Uh, there were others like giant ground sloths and mastodons and woolly mammoths that were also around and that early humans, prehistoric humans hunted in the Americas. And they went extinct uh, by you know about eight or nine thousand years ago. Uh, we don't fully know why. It probably a large reason is climate warming, the end of the ice age. Another reason might be that they were so heavily hunted by these prehistoric people that uh, most of them it, it sort of hastened their extinction. Okay. So uh, after this, uh, again, uh, various different people in the Americas split off and adapted to all sorts of different environments: mountain environments, uh, prairie tropical rainforests like the Amazon, they spread to the Caribbean islands. Uh, many of them became seafaring people. So it you know the Americas have a very complicated and diverse array of, of human societies that have adapted to the very complicated and diverse environments in the Americas. Uh, and I'll talk more probably later about pre-Columbian America, right about uh, life and civilization in the Americas uh, before, 1492, but I, I won't get more deeply into that now. Okay, so as I've already mentioned, a lot of these human groups spread to different parts of the world before the last Ice Age or during the last Ice Age. And this Ice Age started to abate, and the climate started to slowly warm again, certainly by 20,000 years ago. A large mass of glaciers uh, melted, and put enormous amounts of flood water into the oceans around 14,500 years ago. So there, there actually was a, a fairly abrupt and dramatic rise in sea level about 14,500 years ago. And this means that the Bering Land Bridge was covered over with water. Uh, much of the uh, land and peninsulas connecting the islands of Indonesia were covered with water. And all sorts of lands that humans had moved into ended up being cut off by sea. Also large areas uh, in Europe, America, and other areas that had been forest instead changed to grassland as uh, as the climate changed. And many people uh, adapted and were able to flourish on these sort of opening grasslands. So so the human species by and large benefited, from, uh, from this change in climate, not always and everywhere. There certainly were negative effects for many people. But on balance, uh, Homo sapiens tended to benefit from this increase in grassland. They were able to spread into new areas and they were able to intermingle. So small populations that might have been cut off or isolated in uh, cold areas, in forested areas, were able to uh, roam and meet and intermingle with other groups uh, in places like Eurasia and North America. An important new invention emerged around this same time. So pottery, it seems, was probably first invented in China around 20,000 years ago, and then also was invented in some other places like uh, Japan and the Middle East uh, over uh, between about 20,000 and 10,000 years ago. Uh, The earliest Vessels uh, might have been created by accident. You know, People might have shaped small objects or bowls uh, or boxes out of clay. Their dwellings might have then burned down or they might have accidentally dropped something into a fire. And they found that after being sort of intensely roasted in a hot fire for a while, it came out hard, strong, and waterproof. So the, the initial inventions might have been by accident. And, but once people started producing them intentionally, they probably first used them for cooking. Uh, you know, thick enough vessels can be put on or in a fire. Uh, they can hold boiling water. And then eventually also for storage. Uh, you can create watertight and airtight vessels for, for storing food for long periods. So this uh, made it one, this is one of the innovations that made it increasingly possible for people to collect and store up Large amounts of food, rather than having to be constantly moving and finding uh, new food, uh, you could instead uh, sort of build up a supply and put it away for a while. Around this time, humans also domesticated the first animals. Uh, so the first domesticated animals were dogs, uh, and we—it's hard to say exactly when the first domesticated dogs emerged out of wolves. But we see cases of human beings being buried along with dogs by 14,700 years ago. And that's a pretty clear marker that by this time dogs were, were domesticated and were sort of part of some people's social lives, intimate uh, social lives. Uh, we don't know exactly how domestication came about. It probably, again, started unintentionally. The first dogs probably originated from the wolves who hung around with humans and participated in hunts with them right so humans are still primarily hunters and certain wolves that are social enough were able to sort of travel along with humans and and help them whether intentionally or not help them hunt down animals and then would partake in in eating them uh, and gradually this sort of population of wolves split off from wild wolves and became dogs. Okay, so by 14,000 or so years ago, we have humans in an interesting situation. They, they have uh, new habitats that they can take advantage of uh, with the warmer climate. Some also, though, are now isolated in uh, places that have been cut off, by the rise in sea levels and they have new tools like domestic dogs and ceramics that make it possible for them to gather and preserve more food more efficiently than they might have before this situation continues on for several thousand years Okay, people continue to be overwhelmingly hunter-gatherers but the roots of a new technology start to appear that will really revolutionize human life uh, in, a, in, in a really drastic and irreversible way and that leads to what we now know as civilization. And that uh, dramatic new invention is agriculture, right? So the, the practice of intentionally planting and cultivating plants in a settled, fixed environment. Again, we don't know how this was initially invented, and it probably began at least partly unintentionally. So, by about 12,000 or so years ago, there were some people who were spending greater and greater lengths of time in fixed locations, right? So, if they were in an area where they were able to gather a lot of food and collect it, they could stay there for longer. Uh, an important example is the so-called Natufian people in the Near East, in what's now uh, what, what we might now call Palestine, that area. There were people who stayed in fixed villages, sometimes even year-round, and they would continually collect food like grains, nuts, fruits, from the surrounding area and put it in storehouses or granaries, which would hold enough food for them to stay there and they even uh it seems pretty early on they domesticated more animals like uh for example cats and cats are are very useful if you have a granary because cats drive away mice and other you know rodents that might poach your collected uh food in your in your granary shortly after that they also domesticated sheep and goats which are sort of very easy, you know, kind of, you know, kind of dumb herd animals. At least sheep are very sort of dumb herd animals that are easy to lead around, easy to manage, and so they created populations of domesticated sheep for their uh, fur and and for food. Now these sort of more settled, fixed populations also inevitably did things that might have unintentionally led to the beginnings of plant domestication. So they gathered seeds like uh, you know grasses and, and nuts and they created trash heaps, right? So the stuff they had eaten or that was partially eaten that they wanted to discard, they drop it on a trash heap and some seeds in those trash heaps probably then germinated and they could see that uh, if they gathered seeds and sort of dumped them in a certain location, those plants would eventually uh, sprout. And particularly, they might create concentrations of the particular kinds of plants that they liked, because those were the ones that they kept gathering and unintentionally uh, replanting. Uh, similarly, with uh, latrines or, or outhouses, you know, the, the seeds and you know, fruit seeds, for instance, in people's feces might then uh, later germinate and grow into into new plants. And over time, this might have then led to the gradual creation of domesticated varieties, right? Specific types or even species of plants that took on new traits uh, because human beings were selecting for those traits when they gathered these foods like grasses and, and fruits. Okay. It seems as if, however it happened, plant domestication and agriculture were invented independently in at least eight different places around the world, right? So, and, and it seems to have all happened between around 9000 BC and 2500 BC. So in that sort of broad era, after the formation of settled collecting, uh, it seems as if people invented agriculture independently, separately, in different places, over the course of several thousand years. The first place was in the Near East, which is not surprising, that's where the Natufians were, and it seems as if people in the Near East began intentionally replanting and gardening certain plants until they had created uh, domesticated varieties, varieties that produced more seeds, more nutritious seeds, uh, easier to harvest seeds, And particularly grasses, like uh, the earliest domesticated plants surely included uh, wheat, flax, and peas, which were domesticated in the Near East around 9,000 B.C. Around the same time or slightly later, uh, people in Asia, specifically in the upper Yangtze Valley, in sort of in what's now central or west-central China, domesticated millet, And then uh, a little while after that, also rice. In Mesoamerica, sort of in what's now southern Mexico and Central America, people seem to have domesticated bottle gourds and pumpkins around 8,000 B.C., maize around 7,000 B.C., and avocados around 5,000 B.C. So uh, there's, there's, there's something of a snowball effect where once a group of people domesticate one plant, then over time, they're likely to start domesticating more until they have a whole sort of uh, varied diet of domesticated cultivated plants. In South America, particularly in the Andes, uh, people domesticated potatoes and beans around 8,000 B.C., cassava around 6,000 B.C., and chili peppers around 4,000 B.C., In New Guinea, so in the the uplands of the island of New Guinea, uh, people domesticated taro, bananas, and sugar cane in the area called Cook Swamp by about 7,000 BC and later other sort of root vegetables and and tubers uh, in the years after that. And and this fact is a fairly recent discovery. people had long known that agriculture had been invented in the Near East and over time in the 19th, 20th centuries people found other sites where agriculture was invented like uh, the Upper Yantza Valley in Mesoamerica New Guinea was, was a fairly late discovery partly because the complex of crops that these New Guinean people discovered didn't really spread outside New Guinea It remained a practice fairly isolated within the uplands of of New Guinea, but nonetheless, it did persist down to modern day, and so New Guinea has recently been added onto the list of sites where agriculture was independently invented. In Southwest Asia, as uh, anthropologists call it, roughly speaking, Afghanistan, uh, rye was domesticated around 6,000 B.C., date palms 5000 BC and cotton around the same time or a little later also in eastern North America and this is another site that has only recently been confirmed by paleontology to be another independent site of the invention of agriculture Uh, it seems as if indigenous Americans in the upper Ohio Valley roughly around the area that's now Cincinnati to Pittsburgh Uh, People who had been hunter-gatherers invented uh, uh, domesticated varieties of sumpweed, sunflowers, and goosefoot around 2500 BC. So these are all plants that, you know, sumpweed and goosefoot are not plants that we think about or talk about much today. However, they were domesticated by these American people around 2500 BC. Shortly afterward, they then learned about and adopted other crops like various sorts of squash and beans and maize from Mesoamerica, right? So those plant varieties made their way up from Mesoamerica into North America and people quickly started cultivating them as well. And in a sense, that kind of covered over or obscured the fact that before they learned of those varieties from Mesoamerica, they had also domesticated others uh, themselves, which got sort of shunted to the side or, or, you know, kind of marginalized by these newer crops like maize and beans. So that has been, you know, really until recent decades, it was not known that that independent domestication uh, had happened in eastern North America finally in Western Africa around the area of Lake Chad people domesticated millet, sorghum around, also around 2500 BC and then shortly after rice and this one also, it, it took a while for that to be confirmed because those are all crops that had also been domesticated in other places right? millet and rice were domesticated in Asia uh, and so it took a long time to, to determine that people in West Africa had not adopted those crops from Asia uh, but rather had domesticated them separately independently in West Africa around Lake Chad and if you look at West African rice today it mostly is a a species called Oriza glabarima which is totally different and separate from Oriza sativa which is the uh, main form of rice grown in, in Asia and they were domesticated separately and independently in those two different places. Okay, so agriculture was invented in these various different places all after the end of the last ice age. It's hard to say exactly why this happened. Why did all of these different people all make this breakthrough separately and all roughly in the same era? Well, you know, one reason we can float is that, you know, the environment was more conducive to it in some way. It was more possible to live a more settled lifestyle and garden and begin farming after the end of the last ice age than it was during the ice age. However, there certainly were places with similar hospitable conditions during the ice age, uh, and maybe just nobody bothered to do it. It just It's just a coincidence that it didn't happen during the ice age, but it did happen in several places afterwards. Uh, It's also possible that it did happen, but we just haven't found the traces of it. We haven't found the evidence of it. Whatever evidence there once was has been covered over or lost over the millennia. And so the only inventions of agriculture that we know of are in these eight places. The Near East, the Upper Yangtze Valley, Mesoamerica, South America, New Guinea, Afghanistan, Eastern North America, and Lake Chad. Now, why did it happen? Why did they do it? Uh, This is actually a surprisingly difficult question. How and why did people make the transition from hunting, gathering, or collecting into cultivation and domestication? Well, uh, you know, some anthropologists over the years have argued that, uh, that it was an unconscious and unintentional development. And it can be seen as a kind of co-evolution of humans with the plants that they ate, right? So as humans ventured out and collected certain types of rye or wheat uh, that over time those the human consumption of those plants helped to spread them and propagate them. And so this gradual process of selection slowly changed those plant species, right? So wheat, for example, started to produce more bigger seeds that were easier to pick off the plant because those plants that had those traits were more likely to be picked by humans and hence spread and propagated. And so what happened is these uh, plant populations slowly co-evolved with humans until eventually you got domesticated plant varieties and humans who lived largely by collecting and eating those plant varieties. Uh, well, there are problems with this argument that others have pointed out. For example, the human population, before agriculture, the human population was very small. So when we look at the end of the last Ice Age, we're talking about maybe around 20 million people all, spread all over the world. Okay, That's simply not enough people to have such an impact on the population of plants like grasses that are astronomically more numerous. right? So uh, this theory, which was put forward by an anthropologist named Rindos, uh, has not been so well embraced in the years since. Rather, it seems it must be that at some point people started specifically replanting, gardening, and cultivating these plants in a limited Uh, Sphere in specific sites in such a way that they were able to actually change their morphology, change their phenotypes and domesticate them into domesticated varieties. There is also archaeological evidence to show that people were quite conscious and intentional about these specific types and varieties of food that they collected. Uh, For example, there's evidence that there was long-distance trade in seeds. People would Uh, trade particular seeds for particular plant varieties across long distances, which shows that they knew that there were specific varieties they liked with traits that they wanted and that particular seeds would produce those varieties and they would intentionally acquire them and plant them. There seems to have been selective gardening where people um, created garden plots to grow specific varieties of plants and there was interesting uh, crossbreeding between early domesticated varieties and wild varieties, which suggests that maybe sometimes people intentionally crossbred varieties for traits that they wanted. Okay, So it doesn't seem it could have been totally unconscious. Still, there might be an argument to be made that, and some have made the argument, that domestication began because of the change in conditions to a warmer environment where certain grasses then proliferated. Right. So as I said, during, during the warming period when the Ice Age ended, uh, grasslands became more common and heat-loving or thermophilous grasses really spread into many new territories. And so uh, one argument is that people, as these heat-loving grasses multiplied, people depended more on them as a bigger food source and as they turned more and more to those sorts of plants as a major food source uh, they then started unintentionally or intentionally replanting them and and hence agriculture began with this domestication of heat loving grasses like wheat or rye and then moved on to other things Uh, but this theory really doesn't hold up either because uh, many of the origins of agriculture that we see around the world did not involve grasses or at least didn't begin with grains and grasses. For example, in Mesoamerica, we can see the first domesticated plants were gourds and pumpkins. And then only uh, thousands of years later do you get maize. Uh, so so uh, similarly, also in South America, uh, domestication began apparently with potatoes and beans, uh, and really never involved inventions of domesticated varieties of grains. Also in New Guinea, you know, taro, bananas, and sugarcane, we can see in Cook Swamp. And traditional New Guinean agriculture doesn't involve grain, okay? It's, it's an agriculture adapted to tropical highlands, not grasslands. So this uh, argument doesn't hold up, and most recently, Uh, Even when we look at the Near East, right, which is the earliest known invention of agriculture in the world, and which does involve wheat and rye and and barley, even there, recent studies have tried to uh, discern what was the first domesticated plant variety. And it appears it was figs. Okay, so even in the Near East, domestication seems to have begun not with staple foods like grains, but rather with particular varieties of plants that people liked for their taste or their usefulness. Okay, figs for their for their taste, uh, bottle gourds because they're useful uh, as containers, uh, and 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 then and, and and as it goes on, you get date palms and cotton in in Asia. You get uh, avocados. Uh, all sorts of, of plants that seem to be domesticated not because they're really abundant sources of calories, right? not because they're like a source of bread, but because they're a source of something tasty or aesthetically appealing or, or useful. So this really forces us to consider carefully what people were consciously thinking and doing and, and the sort of choices that prehistoric people made that led to agriculture. Okay, Prehistoric people were not automatons as some biologists might like to imagine them, prehistoric people were thinking, choosing, creative, inventive people who acted on, uh, on desires, imaginations, ambitions. Okay. Uh, similarly, some have made a resource stress uh, argument about the origins of agriculture, saying that people must have turned more to gardening and domestication when their resources in the wild were diminishing, right? When people were losing the ability to live off of hunting and gathering because of drought or or extinctions, uh, that they then turned, they sort of fell back on agriculture as a solution. Uh, again, this argument doesn't really work. There are some places like Lake Chad where it seems that's true, that the grassland and forests were retreating, uh, food sources were diminishing, and maybe that pushed... Uh, people in Lake Chad to start cultivating millet and sorghum and so forth. But in other places, there doesn't seem to be any resource stress at all. Uh, You know, there's no reason to suspect that people, for example, in New Guinea uh, were losing uh, tropical forest resources that they had had before. Um, Rather, they simply started domesticating plants and animals uh, because they wanted to, because it gave them some reward. Okay, I think it's it's also reasonable to speculate that this uh, intentionality in domestication might be part of a larger pattern. That after the end of the ice age, the uh, climate change and the rapid sea level rise that happened at the end of the ice age, that people, some people's mentality. Uh, began to change, that uh, the, the transition from the Ice Age into the current era was not a sort of gradual, imperceptible shift, but that it involved a lot of dramatic cataclysmic events, Okay, uh, flooding, uh, sudden uh, breakthroughs of seas into areas where they hadn't been before, sudden extinctions. Uh, uh, possibly new diseases, parasites, and that in all of these ways the experience of the end of the Ice Age might have changed some people's attitudes or mentality and encouraged them to uh, sort of distrust nature and to believe that uh, calamities can happen, uh, familiar environments can suddenly change uh, or vanish, and that you should do things to uh, secure yourself against these eventualities. You should do things like uh, store up food in pottery or in granaries. You should replant foods that you want to be sure that you can rely on. You should uh, use uh, new technologies and strategies to secure your environment. So this sort of desire for security might have been, uh, I think, a sort of long-term environmental shift or behavioral shift that helped to pave the way for the invention of agriculture nonetheless we should note that most people in the world did not embrace the agricultural revolution okay it was a very slow and gradual process for agricultural societies to grow to domesticate more plants and animals and to eventually build up uh, large food surpluses that allowed for the creation of towns and cities okay the first known place where this happened, of course, is Sumer. Those are the first uh, cities we know of in the world, and they were based on large uh, food surpluses from agriculture and irrigation. Uh, but even as these early civilizations emerged, most people continued to be hunter-gatherers. And most hunter-gatherers uh, had little interest in in changing their lifestyle to a settled farming lifestyle. Uh, And you can still see this pattern today. When you talk to hunting-gathering people in places like Australia and Brazil, they tend to say, we're doing perfectly well, we have no interest in changing over and becoming town dwellers or farmers. It sounds boring and unhealthy, and they prefer to maintain their traditional uh, lifestyle. Uh, and anthropologists, for instance, have gone to hunting-gathering people in Australia who f- might collect a certain variety of nuts and ask them, why don't you replant some of those nuts so you can grow them yourself? And they tend to say, why would we do that? There are plenty of them in the wild. So really, for the past uh, about the past 9,000 years, or, or actually more, I should say, about the past 11,000 years, hunting-gathering people and settled farming people have coexisted side by side. And occasionally, some people will transition from one to the other, uh, but not very much. Usually, uh, settled village or town people like to stay where they are, and hunting-gathering people like to continue doing what they do. The enormous explosion of settled agricultural civilization across the world is mostly due to the massive population growth, among farming people, which allows them to continually expand and colonize new places, right? So we, the farming people, have sort of, you know, swarmed over the world because of the huge populations that we can sustain through domestication. However, hunting-gathering people are still around, and their numbers are probably about the same as they were. Before the agricultural revolution, I you know I don't know if there is an exact current count, but I would venture to guess there are still millions of hunting-gathering people uh, spread around the world, and so you know they're still around. And for the most part, if you talk to them, they're fine with things the way they are, as long as we don't you know destroy the land and environments that they live on. Okay. So. That's basically how the agricultural revolution happened. Uh, what, what were the results? Well, some of the things I just, I just named, uh, the enormous growth of towns and cities that depend on the enormous surpluses of agriculture, uh, and also a general drop in living standards. Okay, So when archaeologists look at the remains of hunting-gathering people and early farming people, the general pattern is that the early farming people uh, had a worse diet, uh, a diet with fewer nutrients, uh, they worked extremely hard, you know, agriculture is very hard work, uh, often with uh, not very much reward in terms of their, their diet, uh, they tended to live shorter lives, they tended to be shorter, <laughs> they had less calcium and nutrients like this and it uh, and and they much more often died of diseases you know camp diseases crowd diseases feed on tight concentrations of people that uh, you know all sorts of diseases breed in the tight quarters of towns and cities and and for the most part they were less healthy so this uh, again, underscores the very difficult question of why did people make this transition, right? Why did the early farmers adopt this different lifestyle if hunter-gatherers seem to be perfectly healthy and perfectly happy with the way that they're living? And uh, that's a very hard question, but it seems as if, again, in order to explain it, we have to look at people's thought processes, and we have to consider political and social forces, right? People who transitioned into a farming lifestyle might have individually lost a certain standard of living. They might have lost the comfort, the free time, the freedom of movement that they were accustomed to in hunting-gathering life, but the group that they belonged to as a whole might have benefited, right? If a group gradually adopts agriculture, they now can grow enormous surpluses of certain foods or certain commodities, maybe, too, like hides and horns, that they can then uh, trade uh, and uh, gain wealth and status from. They also can produce large food surpluses that enable some people to not have to worry about producing food. Right? When you're hunting gathering, every able-bodied person really has to be involved most of the time in hunting or gathering in order for the group to survive and you always have to be renewing your flow of food supply every day every week Uh, in a farming village or town most people might be involved in growing and harvesting food but then once you have your food surplus that frees up some people to not be concerned with food production and instead worry about things like building buildings or making art or uh, conducting diplomatic missions or uh, creating written records um, it, it creates the possibility of much more sophisticated uh, endeavors right? and so even if you individually might have a poor diet and be doing back breaking work you might still do it because of political or social pressure or because of the benefits that you believe you're contributing to your group and to the power and status uh, of your group. So that seems to me like probably the most likely area where we can find explanations of why this agricultural revolution happened, even though it had so many drawbacks for the people who took part. And again, as I said, it allows for enormous urban growth, tremendous specialization, new sorts of craftsmen, new sorts of artists, new sorts of government officials can now exist. Uh, these benefits are compounded by irrigation and control of water, which multiplies uh, the ability of people to to produce massive surpluses and gradually what we call uh, civilization emerges, right? Towns, cities, writing, okay? Although I should add the caveat that there's no real clear separation between writing and earlier systems of art and symbolic representation, right? There, we can see all through human prehistory all sorts of instances of, of painting and sculpture and images that seem to have symbolic uh, meanings, uh, crude maps, and so forth. And it's, it's uh, sort of arbitrary to pick out a particular place where, where writing emerges as a distinct technology, okay, um, and uh, the, the scholar Jacques Derrida, one, probably his most famous book is called Of Grammatology, where he basically argues that uh, visual symbolism and crude writing emerged at the same time alongside spoken language, right, uh, and so there's really not such a clear dividing line that we can draw between so-called history and prehistory, but rather, this argument in, in, of Derrida's is, is just one of many points where we can see that the human story really is continuous, right? There, there aren't such clear breaks. Rather, we see a long, flowing story of human experience and human endeavor running far back into the past and in even back to, to our, our close relatives, to the extinct hominid species, who may have done and thought a lot of the same things uh, that we do, right? So, so the, the line between human and non-human, between history and prehistory is very blurry and porous. And we have uh, a long story with no single uh, beginning point, right? There was no moment where the, the sort of like in 2001, a space odyssey where the, the black object came down from space and suddenly we were intelligent humans. It's a continuous story, and, and it's one that then, you know, I hope to continue in future lectures about, about pre-Columbian America and all sorts of aspects of, of the human experience. So thanks, and uh, I'll be back again soon, hopefully. And again, if you uh, want to hear more, or if there are subjects uh, you want to hear about, you can email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or comment on SoundCloud. And if you want these lectures to keep coming and you want to support them, please do go to my Patreon page at historiansplaining on, on Patreon. Thank you.